Hi, good morning, and welcome. Day two of uh, the Festival of Research, and uh, I hope you all had a good day yesterday. Uh, I certainly had a good day and enjoyed it, and uh, found out lots of interesting things about volcanoes and chemistry that I didn't know I wanted to know. Um, just make one or two very brief announcements just before I introduce our, our next keynote speaker. Uh, I'd like to encourage you, if you haven't already been and looked at them, to go and see the student poster display, uh, which is part of the competition, which is on the barrel mezzanine, and then to come to the prize giving, which is at 1.15 uh, this afternoon in this, in this building. And also, uh, after the prize giving, to hang around for a while, um, because we've got the students who were performing yesterday, and I think some of you saw the some of the student performances, and if you haven't, you can still see the graffiti, uh, which is opposite the refectory. Uh, but some of those students will actually be showing some of their work uh, immediately after the prize giving and before our forum. So uh, please try and come and uh, bring a few other people along with you. Um, okay, the whole point of a festival of research is to uh, introduce you to some of the uh, best research and some of the best researchers in the university. And I'm really pleased to be able to welcome our next keynote um, speaker, uh, Trevor Herbert, Professor Trevor Herbert, uh, comes from South Wales, uh, born in uh, Park uh, in South Wales, uh, went to Tony Pandy Gran Grammar School, and then read music in uh, education at St. Luke's College in, in University of Exeter. I've got all the years here, actually, Trevor, but I won't read, read them out. Um, he studied trombone at the uh, Royal College of Music as a foundation scholar, and subsequently went on to do a degree in humanities at, uh, at the Open University. So he's one of our success stories and also did his PhD for a thesis on the trombone in, in England uh, before 1800, also with the Open University. He has, uh, as well as being an academic scholar, he's also played uh, the trombone in a number of uh, orchestras, many leading London orchestras, including the BBC Symph Symphony Orchestra, the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra, Glyndebourne Opera, Welsh National Opera, the Northern Symphonia, the Taverner Players, Music Reservata, and the Wallace Collection. He's also published extensively uh, on brass instruments, and his last book in 2006 was on the, on the trombone. I'm really pleased to welcome him. He's also a staff tutor in South Wales, as am I, so it's very nice to, to welcome him here, Professor Trevor Herbert. Thank you very much. I enjoyed that. The... Um uh, the, I'm in the music department of the Open University here. It's a very good department. It's one I'm very proud to be in. Only yesterday, my colleague, Professor Donald Burroughs, learned that he had a grant for £380,000 to investigate the documents relating to the career of George Frederick Handel. Uh, this implies the documents bit, that we don't have a lot to do with music as a performing activity. In fact, the exact opposite is, is true. Everything we do is to do with, with musical performance. We're interested, all of us, I think, in the way that music was written, the music, the music, how music was played and is played, and how it's listened to, how it's received. And anyone who listened to Radio 3 last Saturday morning would have heard another of my colleagues, Robert Phillip, um, in an hour's broadcast, talking about uh, how much we learn from Victorian and early 20th century player pianos that record the performances of players of the past. From my point of view, I'm interested in brass instruments. Uh, brass instruments are instruments which are very often made of brass, but more importantly, they're instruments where the sound is made by blowing into a mouthpiece. So a trombone and a trumpet is a brass instrument, but a saxophone isn't a brass instrument because the sound is blown through a reed. 
Um, I've always been interested in this, and uh, I'm going to tell you uh, how I became interested in it, how I, um, the sort of questions that I, that I research, and the way in which I, I do it. I was asked to speak, this is the email I got asking me to be here, and I was asked to speak for 25 minutes, so it's going to be 25 minutes, and I'm going to tell you um, how I came to where I am today and what I'm doing and how I do it. And a good place to start is to give you a slightly abstracted version of, um, of what Dave Middleton say by saying something about my personal background. And this is not merely autobiographical. It explains the, where the questions came from. Uh, and it's all more or less true. Um, as a small boy, I, I learned to play uh, the trombone in a brass band in, in the South Wales Mining Valley. Um, I, had, I couldn't read music, and I didn't know how to play, and I was told, I was given an instrument and told that I had to blow through the narrow end of it, and um, I knew how to play, uh, and that was basically it. Um, over a few years, I learned how to read music, and I learned how to play, and I learned, uh, and I picked up a love for music. I thought it was fantastic. I used to think of names like the Black Dyke Mills Band as other boys thought about Manchester United. It was a very important thing for me, and it excited an interest in music for me. But it wasn't until I got into the National Youth Orchestra of Wales that I realised that the brass band was a very self-contained world. It was a world with its own values, its own repertoires, its own ways of playing. And the types of instincts... That, had, uh, that got me to be a musician by learning the way I did in a brass band was entirely different in a symphony orchestra. And it touched my sensitivities in, I suppose, two major ways. The first is that I heard the sound of violins and cellos and so on, and I realized that the mix that I was a part of in a symphonic sound was entirely different than in a brass band. The other bit of my sensitivities that it touched was that there were girls in symphony orchestras, and uh, at that time, uh, there were none in, in brass bands, but I'll, I'll take that no further. Um, I then went on to the Royal College of Music, and another set of interruptions came into my thinking about music. The Royal College of Music is one of the great conservators of the world, and I was very pleased to be there, very honored to be there. And there I was taught uh, and, um, to a particular pattern, to a particular set of orthodoxies of playing, uh, a set of orthodoxies that had emerged, as it happens, from the Paris Conservatoire in the 19th century, which exploited the understanding that there was a way to play which carried forward a tradition of Western art music, so that you played Beethoven and you played Mozart and so on. It was to do with precision. It was to do with a certain sort of artistry. It was a certain sort of sound world that you were introduced to there as well. When I finished there, I started playing professionally, and there was another experience, and I, I was in the BBC Symphony Orchestra. The BBC Symphony Orchestra was a terrific orchestra to be in because it was appeared when Pierre Boulez was the conductor. And more than any other orchestra in the world, probably, it specialised in, in, in modernism and the avant-garde. So the main sort of repertoire that we used to play was Stravinsky, Boulez himself, and the 20th century composers. And the whole approach there was in pushing forward the boundaries of the way in which instruments could be played and the way that they could be made to sound. We were constantly trying to change the sound palettes. And that was extremely interesting because I felt that I was present at a sort of moment of change. There was another sort of change going on, and that was what we now call the early music movement 
where there was a sort of cottage industry taking place, whereby um, performers were trying to rediscover the way in which music was, being, was performed in the past and also the way in which repertories in the past existed. And I started playing with a group which turned out to be quite important. It's, it's, this is a story of luck more than anything else, called Musica Reservata. And one of the things that I had to do there was to entirely forget what I did with Pierre Boulez in the symphony orchestra and try to think in an entirely different level and in an entirely different sound world. This was very perplexing, but it was very, very, um, very, very different because I was dealing with different substances. Another part of my um, moonlighting at that time was that I played in commercial and pop music sessions, and there different types of substances were in, uh, within operation. And, and that, too, was very interesting because what happened there was you'd get pop groups who would go into a studio um, and they would get session players like me who were literate and we could read and we could play. And there was a sort of collision between what they wanted from us and the sort of compositional creative processes that they were engaged in. So all of that created in me a number of, um, of dilemmas and a number of, um, of very interesting points, which I was able to exploit here at the Open University as a part-time PhD student. And the dilemmas were, why is it that different performance domains, such as the ones I've just outlined, have entirely different values? Um, how do we understand performance and its history in a way that really matters? I mean, it's easy enough to write a book about the history of performance, but to, make, to write one that has, actually has an effect, that makes people listen in a different way or play in a different way, was much more of a challenge. And then the other thing I looked at was whether or not the existing approaches to the study of musical instruments that I was interested in consistently yielded effective results, and I didn't think it did. <coughs> the key question I was aiming for was how were brass instruments played and understood in different places and at different times in history. And that question has prevailed as the central question that I've investigated throughout my career here at the Open University. And the key word is understood, because only players play instruments, but they're understood to a much wider constituency of people. They're understood by composers, by listeners, by audiences, by ordinary people. The traditional approaches could be very broadly split into two types. One was the organological approach, and the other was the approach of conventional historical musicology. Organology is the study of musical instruments as physical objects. I'm not liked very much by organologists. Uh, in fact, um, I'm really disliked by organologists <laughs> because I, I, I have always questioned whether musical instruments themselves yield answers to the sort of questions that are the most interesting ones about performance. For example, the standard method of classifying musical instruments, written by a man called Saxon Hordbostel, um, is aimed at classifying instruments irrespective of their cultural application. And for me, that's crazy. It's all about cultural application, and it is less to do with the classification of instruments as physical objects. I also find it rather spooky. I mean, for example, this set of trombones from the 17th century uh, from the Caribbean Museum in Rome look pristine, so pristine, which makes you wonder whether they were ever used, actually. And maybe they were never used because they were so daft that nobody wanted to play them, and that's why they ended up in the Caribbean Museum looking so good. 
this set of instruments is a lot more interesting. This is found in a museum in South Wales. Um, and they're interesting because if we look at them very carefully, they've been cut, off, cut up over the years to make them shorter or bits put on to make them longer. And it seems to me that these tell stories which are much more interesting. But even those instruments uh, don't actually carry the sort of information that I was looking for. As far as historical musicology and brass instruments is concerned, the preoccupation with historical musicology was on special occasions, coronations, birthdays, ceremonies, funerals, and so on. You can see at the front of this illustration is a group of musicians. The reason why those sorts of special occasions are so prominent in musical history is because they leave a paper trail. They leave descriptions of what went on. Uh, another thing which preoccupies musicology is the tradition that I told you about of orthodoxy. This is the trombone class in the Paris Conservatoire in the 19th century being conducted by the great player Marcel Dubois. Um, <clears throat> and it seemed to imply that there was a single way of playing which went through history and changed only as repertoires changed. But that can't be true, and the methodologies couldn't be true. Uh, this document, which dates from 1532, uh, it contains the names of, um, I think it's 42 players. But if you look at the arrow about halfway up, the 14 lines that go up from that arrow are payments to trombone players. More importantly, they're monthly payments, which implies a daily rate. Now, they must have been doing something every day. They weren't just around to play for funerals because there weren't that many funerals even in Henry VIII's uh, you know, uh, days. So I, th there are many gaps to be, to, that, that weren't understood about the routines of playing, that went, what went on, and that really interested me. The other thing that interested me were the factors outside the particular, such as are evoked by this image of a bandstand in, um, <coughs> in Morecambe at the turn of the century. For every brass player that was making a living from it in England in the 19th century, there were probably a hundred, maybe more, more, maybe hundreds of players who were playing as amateurs in brass bands, and they were probably playing at least as well as and maybe better than the professionals. And that was not just a British phenomenon. It went around the world. This is a circus band, um, which was photographed in America early in the 19th century. And I couldn't help feeling that these sorts of ensembles um, had a performance domain of their own and, and, and uh, having investigated quite a lot of it um, as it happens I mean two of the sort of movements that come out of this sort of arena are, are very important one of them is avant-garde ways of playing and the other of course is the origins of jazz uh, so new questions emerged uh, that, 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 that fascinated me one, what were the ordinary routines of players as opposed to just the sort of special things that went on. Who were the exceptional players and who were the journeymen? One of the things that I've done, which I'm not going to talk about much this morning, is do an investigation of, um, of the trombone players in silent movie houses in the early 20th century, which was absolutely fascinating. These players were devastated when, when talking movies, sound movies came in. It was huge. There was nothing like it in terms of a change in the employment patterns of musicians, so I've done that. The next point was, um, could cultural and social historical approaches shed light on, on these things? Now, I'd learned quite a lot of that, about that um, doing a, a first degree at the Open University. 
and uh, that has preoccupied me quite a lot, actually, is, uh, is those sorts of approaches. And then the, uh, the, then the final one is, is the idea of a single history of brass performance inherently faulty? And I can, I can assure you now that it is, because there's not a history. There are several histories. There are different stories, and that's why the word story comes into my, uh, my title. So the types of sources that I've um, been using are, are, are listed there. Uh, I'll give you some examples. I do indeed use instruments, but unlike organologists, I actually played them. Uh, these trombones are quite interesting. Um, each of them I've I, I played as a, a professional player. The, the one on, which is closest to me from where you're sitting is um, a copy of an instrument made in about 1610. It's now in the Germanische Museum in Nuremberg. Um, an excellent copy, and I played that with, with um, 16th and 17th century uh, groups. The next one along is, uh, is made in 1900 in this country by Besson. And the next one along is a, a, an instrument by Conn, which I, I played in the BBC Symphony Orchestra, an American instrument. But if you look at them, you don't have to have a PhD in organology to see that the bell, that is the funnel shape at the very end of the instrument, on the, on the instrument which is closest to me, is tiny compared with one at the far end. And that is indicative of a general trend that has gone on where sounds have got bigger uh, in order to accommodate what people, what listeners want um, the, the, in terms of concert halls, in terms of the bigger sounds that composers have asked for. So what I've been interested in terms of, um, of musical instruments are generalities rather than uh, detailed information and above all experimenting with different things of playing them rather than actually just uh, measuring them as it were. Uh, musical texts are very important, and I put this up because for a very large, uh, this picture, because for a very large proportion of the time, um, <coughs> the music which brass players played was not written down. Um, the, 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 the pay list I showed you of 1532 showed 14 players making a full-time wage. Um, I have others which um, go into the 15th century, but there are only two pieces of music um, which have trombone written on them before 1600. And there is no music until well into the 17th century um, for the trumpet, uh, that is written for the trumpet. But we know these instruments were played. So what repertoires did they play and how did they play it? And um, I've published quite a lot of this. And my, the story I tell is one where, where memorization was very important and improvisation. And um, <clears throat> I think that I've put forward pretty good cases for that. And it's one of the most fascinating stories, I think, of this entire area of discourse. Um, in terms of looking at, at written music, I've always tried to find new stuff and to find music which is primary sources rather than secondary sources. This is an interesting piece because it is the trombone part of a pavan found in the personal, um, in the household band book of Oliver Cromwell. Uh, this set of manuscripts was, was missing um, for a long time, and it was because it was in the, um, in the National Art Library at the Victorian and Albert Museum. And it, it, it found its way there, I eventually discovered, not because there's something special about the music, but because of the cover. And this cover, I'm sorry the picture isn't, so, isn't very good, is the only known image of the, um, of, of the crest of Oliver Cromwell, so they put it in the National Art Museum rather than the music source. Uh, documents are very interesting. And the things we, I looked at here are trends, um, uh, data, that is empirical information, and also patterns of change. Uh, 
So, for example, uh, there was a time when I looked at about 30 years of the output of a particular brass instrument factory where I was able to look not just at the instruments that were being produced, but also in the columns near the sort of the spine uh, where they were going. You know, what, what, so it is a marvelous opportunity to test patterns of distribution of instruments. One of the really interesting things which I'll um, allow you to ponder is that in that period, um, the, the, the biggest uh, clientele was in the UK, and the next biggest clientele was in the in, the, um, in North America. The next biggest was in Egypt, uh, which is, uh, yes, quite, um, Egypt. So anyway, we can have a chat about that later. Um, this is another one, which is a really interesting one, I think. Um, <clears throat> I looked at a sample in a particular source of, um, or collection of sources of, um, of, of the patterns of, of people who became professional players in London. Um, by looking at, at the Royal Society of Musicians Archives, this was a sort of an insurance organization, and this one struck me particularly. It is a man called Booth. The thing which is interesting about it, if you look at it, um, th there's the mark of the mother, which obviously implies that the, that the illiteracy and so on. But the father was uh, a night attendant at a lunatic asylum. Now, I'm sure that being a night attendant at a lunatic asylum Asylum is never a bed of roses, but in the 19th century it must have been dreadful. The really interesting thing, though, is that this man was the first person I'd encountered in this investigation whose father was not a musician. Um, and there was a different sort of process taking place. The idea of a separate, of, of the, the dynasties of playing, which had gone on for centuries, was breaking down in favor of a system of education. And uh, I found that very interesting. And so that is, but of course, I only found that interesting because I'd looked at hundreds of these things already. And, and so that's the way I do my business. Images are interesting. Um, I, I, I've written a paper on the origins of the trombone. And this, I think, is the earliest picture of a trombone. There are other pictures that look like this. But is she moving her right arm? I mean, that's the question you've got to, got to work out. And, uh, um, so that's one of the, 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 the reasons I looked at, at uh, iconography. I've looked at the, um, at the processes of advertising brass instruments in the 20th century to see how the constituencies of players actually grew. And I've also looked at the imagery of the military in brass bands. This is a very important thing because the imagery of the military carried signals also the way in which they actually played with a certain precision and a certain type of playing, even related to pitch, actually. This is the St. Hilary, Hilary Colliery Band, the first uh, amateur brass band to go professional. Now, this is really interesting because they had their picture taken just like that. Then 20 minutes uh, later, they announced themselves to be a professional band, and they had their picture taken like that. Uh, and and uh, so that sort of image carried, I think, you know, something which was much more important than simply... Um, uh, the image itself. I've also looked at recordings, and generally speaking, the approaches that I've just outlined uh, shows that I'm more interested in collecting stories about cells of activity than I am about a great history. Uh, one of them is the, the story of the Kavalfa band, which I was very lucky to discover. Uh, information about this band, mid-19th century, very early, uh, I discovered the instruments in an attic in, a, in an old castle in Wales. I also discovered the, um, uh, the, 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 the written, handwritten music. 
and we were able to completely reconstruct that repertoire on the original instruments. And that was really great experiments. That was a laboratory. Um, I was also interested in the brass band contest as a phenomena and, and what it actually did in terms of musical life. Um, this is an entrance form for the Crystal Palace um, uh, Band Concert at Sydney. Uh, it, this contains a fantastic amount of information, which I don't actually have the time to, uh, to tell you about today. But one of the things that is asked for in this, in this um, uh, pr bureaucratic process was which railway station that the bands would be getting on at. And the reason is that the railway companies were sponsoring the, um, were sponsoring the bands' travel. And there is room to believe that the term cheap day excursion was actually invented for people to go to brass band contests because railways were important. One of my favorite images, this is the railway system in the 1840s. This is the railway system about 20 or 30 years uh, later. The important thing is that railways didn't just carry people and commodities, they carried ideas. And, for, and, and then all of a sudden, the idea of there being a national style became a real possibility uh, in, in British music. I looked at civic musicians in Germany in the 16th and 17th centuries because I, I, there was a body of sources there which they played every day. So there's an example of the routines that I've investigated. And I've also looked at early New Orleans uh, jazz bands. Uh, this is my favorite picture. It's the, uh, um, the Woodgate uh, jazz band photographed in La Place, Louisiana in 1902. The chap the second from the left is the great Kid Ori. Um, and I've been to New Orleans, and I've looked at the oral interviews with these people. This is a marvelous example of an early New Orleans jazz player whose entire sensibilities are the exact opposite of what you expect in the Orthodox conservatory tradition. He said, how did you learn slight positions? He said, I just came natural, and I put my arm there, and I just felt it was right. He said, did you ever practice? And he said, no, never practice. Did you ever warm up? Never warmed up. If I, if I told that to my trombone professor at the academy, he'd have strung me up. Um, I've also done work on the Moravians of Pennsylvania, a religious sect, not entirely dissimilar, but a bit dissimilar to the Hamish, uh, who actually use trombone sections for signaling. Uh, they play chorales to signal uh, messages across the community, and I spend a lot of time in the, in the community in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. And more recently, I've been working on the effect of recording on trombone players and others. Uh, this is the London Symphony Orchestra in 1950, and this is the New York Philharmonic Orchestra. Um, apart from the fact that they're wearing more relaxed clothes, they are actually playing instruments which are twice the size. And what you actually see there is the beginning of a phenomenon which we now call globalization. Um, so the conclusions that I've drawn are that the adherence to alternative approaches that I've used to the narrow organological and musicological approaches are right. I'm glad I did that. The next is that the idea that performance is a creative rather than an executive activity. Um, this is something which I've realized um, from the work I've done rather than something which I said how to prove. The next is that within performance traditions there are huge cultural shifts, which means that this idea of, of looking at parcels of time and of, of activity becomes very important. Social, cultural, and economical conditions determine rather than provide a context for performance values. And this, too, is, is very important. And then the other thing which uh, I, I would say is that within all performance eras, there are networks, orthodoxies, countercultures, and hierarchies. And if you don't understand them, you are really missing the point. Thank you very much.
Thank you very much, uh, Trevor. That was uh, fascinating and, uh, uh, and very instructive. Um, we don't rush away. Uh, we're going to give you the chance again to um, to uh, to win some prizes and perhaps uh, get some uh, uh, book tokens in which you'll be able to expand your mind. And one book you might want to put on the list is Trevor's book, 2006, called The Trombone, published by Yale University Press. And I'm sure there's a lot more of what Trevor's just been talking about in there. It's on my list. Okay, well, there we are. You can do it. <laughs> no, I thought I'd be illegal. I want to win. Go on, no, you do it. I want right. to win. <laughs> <laughs> a, a bit of competition. Okay. It's, uh, sorry, Trevor. It's number eight. <laughs> we have two more. Don't rush off. Um, number 15. Okay, one. Around. While you're doing that, can I just remind you that at 11 o'clock in here, we have a demonstration of uh, KMI's uh, uh, flash meeting uh, software, and they'll be linking up with people in Spain and Manchester this morning. Uh, and you can also, if you're uh, watching this uh, as a webcast, you can also join that as a webcast as well. Has anyone found number, what number was it? Number 15. Yeah, okay, fine. Well, that's very... So, yeah. Oh, it's all around yours, Trevor. It's number 17. Have we got it? Okay, all right, we'll get that one up there. And, oh, sorry, Trevor. Number 26. It's not mine, is it? Oh, I didn't get one. Anyone got number 26? No? Well, no one left. <laughs> Someone must have had it. Uh, oh, number 16. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well done. Well, thank you very much. Okay, so at 11 o'clock we've got the KMI conference. Uh, sadly, uh, we received news this morning. Marie Gillespie was taken into hospital overnight. I think she's okay now. Um, she's um, off work for a couple of days. Uh, but that means she couldn't be with us um, this, uh, today. Uh, so we spent uh, part of today... Um, trying to organise the best um, uh, alternative we can. And I'm very grateful um, for uh, Professor Tony Bennett from Sociology, who uh, agreed at the last moment, completely rearranged his schedule to be here, and uh, agreed to stand in and, uh, and give the final keynote. Um, so, Tony, as uh, some of you will know, is the director of the uh, ESRC Centre for Research on Social Cultural Change, which by a strange coincidence is also where Marie Gillespie does her work. Um, so this wasn't uh, an entirely random selection of alternate. Uh, his general interests are uh, cultural studies and cultural history, um, and he's had uh, areas of special interest, including history and theory of museums, history and theory and development of modern forms of cultural governments, uh, statistical and ethnographic studies of everyday cultural practice, uh, development of forms of cultural analysis that throw new light on relations between culture and the social. He's most, uh, most of his work at the moment is tied up with the uh, centre. Uh, there's a number which is a collaboration with the University of of, uh, of Manchester. Uh, he's uh, a member of the Faculty of Social Sciences and I'm particularly pleased to welcome him uh, uh, to do this uh, keynote 
on uh, cultural and social divisions in contemporary conference. Thank you. Britain it says conference. Like it I read it. <laughs> well, your area. <laughs> it is my area. We'll move quickly on beyond that. Um, if we could have the uh, the visual up, do I need to press something, or will? Okay, great. Um, all right. Look, thanks for that introduction, and I'm uh, uh, pleased to be able to uh, stand in for Marie. Very sorry to hear about her. Uh, what looks like it's going to be a short-term um, inconvenience rather than a real problem. Um, unfortunately, if, if Marie was um, to talk to you about uh, jokes and the national imaginary and um, uh, the television series that she's been working on tonight, I think I'm here to demonstrate that research is no laughing matter. <laughs> um, but I hope you'll find it interesting in any, in any case. Um, I'm going to, at this point in time, bless um, PowerPoints because I wouldn't have been able to put this together so quickly. But clearly, in trying to put this together quickly, I haven't managed to delete what was the preceding title, which ended with conference, which is what should be the title for this presentation, which should end in Britain, which, as we all know, is not a conference. Uh, so, <laughs> Culture and Social Divisions in Contemporary Britain is the title of my presentation. And what I want to do in this presentation is to uh, this lecture is to present some of the main findings coming out of the project that's indicated there, uh, a project funded by the Economic and Social Research Council called Cultural Capital and Social Exclusion. And it is the first thing I need to say, this is a, a team project that has been, um, as is the ESRC Centre for Re Social Research that Dave mentioned, this team project has been conducted across uh, the Open University and the University of Manchester, part of a significant intellectual collaboration with the people there indicated as responsible, as well as you'll see some French statisticians. What I want to do in this project, uh, three or four things. I want to just briefly outline the theoretical background to the research. I want to um, overview its components. I want to briefly review the general findings regarding the nature of the relations between cultural practices and social divisions in contemporary Britain. And then I want to look more closely at two aspects of our findings. Firstly, the ways in which um, preferences for films are related to social divisions in Britain. And thirdly, the ways in which we've sought to build upon and go beyond our research mentor, I think, in this practice, the work of the French sociologist Pierre Bourdieu, and incorporating into our research a consideration that he didn't or wasn't able to incorporate into his research, and that's a question of the relationship between culture and ethnicity uh, in contemporary Britain. So those are the things that I want to do. Very briefly theoretical background. Um, in the mid-1960s in France, uh, Pierre Bourdieu, who on the basis of this study called Distinction, a Social Critique of the Judgment of Taste, has become probably the most, uh, on this and his subsequent work, probably one of the most important, if not the most important, sociologist of the 20th century. But it's certain that this book is one of the most quoted books and significantly engaged with books in terms of both empirical research and theoretical work in sociology in the post-war period. And in this book that arose out of a statistical and ethnographic, but I'm focusing on the statistical today, a statistical survey of the cultural tastes and interests of French people in Paris, in Lille, and in another provincial city, um, Bourdieu's had two main concerns. The first one was to demonstrate that um, uh, so to speak, and I'm referring here to a title of a, that myself and some Australian researchers, when, when I was in Australia, even engaged with Bourdieu's work. Um, 
the sense of disagreeing with the statement that there's no accounting for taste. This is a very common statement, there's no accounting for taste. And Bourdieu's purpose was to say, yes, there is. That if we look at people's cultural tastes and interests right across the whole field, whether it's for television, whether it's for food, whether it's the sport that they do, whether it's how they work out, whether it's for music, whether it's for art, or whether it's for literature, there's a systematic social logic that underlies what people like and what they don't like, what they do and what they don't do in the cultural sphere. So that was one part of his concern, was to say there's a, real, there's a social logic that informs practices of taste, judgments of taste. And this cut against, this was a sociologist writing against the tradition of Western philosophical aesthetics. But secondly, he wanted to develop, or to continue to develop, a theory that he'd broached in earlier work concerning the relationships between cultural capital, the education system, and the reproduction of class divisions. So he didn't just want to say that there was a social logic underlying practices of taste, but this was a consequential social logic that played, had a key role to play in the ways in which class divisions are organized in contemporary societies like uh, Paris or France, 1960s. And from the point of view of our concerns in this project, Britain, 2004-5, which is when we did the, did the work. And this theory of cultural capital goes roughly along the following lines. Bourdieu argued that in France, in a highly competitive, um, discriminatory, elitist education system in the 1960s, was that people from middle-class family backgrounds acquired a certain kind of familiarity with high culture, which I'm going to use that word loosely for this lecture, with high culture, with the great works of literature and of, and of art and so on of the Western European tradition. They acquired this in their home background. They acquired a certain adroitness, a, a capacity to use and be familiar with this set of cultural resources. Secondly, he said that this was in, a, in a, an education system, particularly in the relationship between higher secondary schooling and the, universe, and the university system in France. These forms of knowledge, these forms of cultural knowledge were especially prized in the schooling system and that people who had acquired an, an adeptness, a familiarity with these forms of high culture at home tended to do, have a much better prospect of doing well at school than uh, children from working class backgrounds. And that as a consequence, they would be much more likely to go on to university, and that as a consequence, they would be much more likely to move into a higher level managerial and French position, and higher managerial and professor, and not professorial, that's, that's a way down, and professional, <laughs> higher level managerial and professional positions within the occupational class structure. And uh, his argument then was that culture connected with the was connected with the education system in such a way that it reproduced class inequalities without seeming to do so. It seemed as though those who were in occupational positions, uh, higher occupational positions, were so because of ability, their ability. But Bourdieu's argument was that they were there so because they had a particular kind of cultural ability that the schooling and education system was biased toward. And he produced in his book Distinction, based upon a long questionnaire that looked at people's interests and cultural interests and activities across all different areas, he produced very strong empirical evidence that this was so, that you could correlate people's social backgrounds with their cultural interests, with their educational backgrounds, with their current occupational class positions. So we got funded by the ESRC to see whether the same is true in Britain today. Um, and very briefly, this has been a, a project conducted over the years 203 to 206. It was 
it comprised 25 focus group discussions. These focus groups were held on, uh, uh, each focus group had a different mix of people from different social backgrounds defined in terms of gender, ethnicity, class, level of education, and region. We conducted these focus groups throughout the four kingdoms of the United Kingdom. We then had a national random survey, which there was a computer-administered questionnaire to 1,000 sites, a main sample of 1,754 respondents, and then we had an ethnic boost sample to try to get uh, um, to look at the relationship of the three main minority ethnic groups in the United Kingdom to these processes of cultural capital and uh, class formation. Uh, so uh, an ethnic boost sample divided more or less equally between Indian, Pakistani, and Afro-Caribbean respondents. And then we fo did follow-up interviews with 44 members of the um, of these two uh, surveys and their partners. Now I'm just going to focus upon some of the findings coming out of the um, uh, coming out of the statistical data and coming mainly coming out of the survey of the main sample in the first instance. Now this is where I hope. Where do I go to next? All right. Uh, and this tells you roughly the sorts of things that we asked about. In relationship to all of these domains of taste and cultural knowledge and participation, we asked people how much television they watched, how often they went to the cinema, how often they went to museums and art galleries and so on and so forth. But we also asked them what kinds of television they liked, what television genres they liked, whether it was news, whether it was current affairs, whether it was um, soap operas, reality television, and so on. And Similarly, across different kinds of reading, do you prefer whodunits to crime stories or do you like modern literature? But we also asked a lot of questions about particular cultural items. So on television, we didn't just ask about what favorite kind of television genre it might have been, but also which were your favorite programs. Was it A Touch of Frost, Midsummer Murders, Six Feet Under, or, or which out of a set list? So in all of these areas, we were looking at what people did, whether they go to museums, for example, what kinds of art they like. Did they like Renaissance art or modern art? What kind of artists they like? Okay, so trying to get a really in-depth picture about people's cultural activities, what kind of sports they played, what sports they watched on television, and um, what, what foods they like, where they like to eat, and so on. And what's important about this is putting all of these things together so that you're as you'll see in a moment, you're able to see what links there are between what food people like to eat and what art they like. Okay? This is the significance of it, is being able to look at these connections across these different fields of culture, cultural activity. And what we've done, and we're the, we're the first research team to do this really, is to follow a technique that Bourdieu used in uh, his book, Distinction, called Multiple Correspondence Analysis, which is, without going into it in great detail, um, the logic of it is, is to show how people's tastes are distributed relative to one another in what Bourdieu called the social space of lifestyles, which is the thing I was showing before and that I hope is going to come up reasonably large. It has. So I want to just talk you through this. I, I know you can't see it clearly. Can you see it at all? I mean, you can, you can work out some... I mean, not just the, the frames. I mean, read some of it. Let me talk you through it briefly. This is a social space of lifestyles, and each dot here represents, the brown ones represent pe what people do or do not do and what they like or do not like in the sphere of reading or literature. The red ones are about whether they go 
to art galleries or museums, whether they have paintings, whether, what kinds of art they like. The green ones are about musical tastes. And, uh, no, excuse me. The green ones are about um, culinary tastes, whether you like fish and chips or French restaurants. Fish and chips, if you like fish and chips, you're there. If you like French restaurants, you're there. All right, and I'll, I'll come back on that in a little while. The blue ones are about musical taste and practices, okay? Now, each of these dots represents the mean point for those people in the sample who said they liked or engaged intensively in the particular kind of activity concerned. So this represents the mean point for people who said that they liked impressionist art, okay? And the point about it is, is that the closer together the mean points are, for expressing a like for these practices, that means that the closer the degree of connection there is between people who like the same things. So that we've got here, the mean point for liking Impressionism is close to the mean point for liking modern art, which means there's a great deal of overlap between the people who like those two things. The further apart they are, the less likelihood there is of any degree of congruence between people liking those things and so on. So that Liking Impressionism and liking modern literature, and as it turns out, liking French restaurants down there, are all exceedingly close together, but fish and chips is a country mile away. Okay? So what this technique does is allow you to visualize the sorts of connections. This doesn't mean to say that everyone who likes Impressionism likes modern literature. It means there's a strong degree of statistical probability of connection. It allows you to map connections on a visual space between people who tend to like similar kinds of things. And that's all that this is telling us at the moment. It's grouping together practices that tend to be liked by the same kinds of people. But we do get clusters, so that, as I mentioned before, on this left-hand side, liking Impressionism is close to liking modern literature, is close to going to museums sometimes, that's reasonably frequently, going to art galleries, going once a year to opera, going to French restaurants, um, going sometimes to opera, going sometimes to uh, orchestral concerts. Um, that's a clear cluster of things that we would want to use in traditional terms. We call that high culture. All right? There's lots of quibbles we could make about that. In, and in another connection, I would correct myself and say, no, we can't call that high culture. But today, that's high culture. <laughs> <coughs> OK? But we get different clusters. If we look up here, we find that liking modern art, liking science fiction in reading, liking urban music, liking heavy, heavy metal music, these are all reasonably close to one another. So there's a different kind of cluster there. If we go here, what's strongest in the positive like? So this is liking, this is watching more than five hours television per day. Liking soap opera, uh, going together with a strong dislike for many of the things that are preferred over here. So the people who, by and large, we're saying, who watch a lot of television and in particular like soap opera, never go to art galleries. They dislike classical music. They never go to stately homes. They never go to museums. They dislike biographies. They dislike modern literature. Not all of them, of course, but statistically, there's a much greater likelihood that that will happen on this side of the space. Down here, we have a clustering of people who like country music, who like going to musicals at films, but who dislike urban music, who never go to nightclubs, who dislike world music. All right, so I'm just trying to pick out some clusters there. 
Now, the point about this is you can also then, using this technique of statistical analysis, rather than doing thousands of cross-tabulations, you can also map into the same space the mean points for people's social backgrounds of various kinds, level of education, um, class position, age, gender, or what have you. Now, you remember that I said that for Bourdieu, the, the theoretical argument was that familiarity with high culture was acquired in bourgeois or middle-class homes. This tended to confer an advantage in the schooling system. That advantage in the schooling system was cashed out in terms of people going on to managerial and professional careers. And in this sense, he says, cultural capital plays a key role in the formation of forms of uh, contemporary forms of class divisions. It doesn't uh, cultural capital here being something that as a metaphor is thought of as being transmitted from parents to their children through the education system. All right, we all know about that, about the struggles over middle-class parents, about placing their children in well-placed schools, etc. Um, it's a form of inheritance via the education system, Bourdieu argues, that operates like economic capital, but differently for a different group of the population. Economic capital is still operating, but that's not particularly what he's what he's showing here. But if we look at our next diagram, what this shows is, by and large, to simplify what I was saying in the preceding social space of lifestyles, you could say that people on the right-hand side were people who were not taking part in officially validated forms of legitimate or high culture to an extraordinary degree. All right? This was the people, reality television, um, five-hour television, not going to art galleries, not going to museums, whereas on the left-hand side, there was a, a much greater tendency for... Uh, people to take part in uh, high cultural forms of activity. What we find here is level of education here. We find really a textbook demonstration of Bourdieu's arguments. No educational qualifications. O level. Uh, vocational qualifications. A level. University education. Just showing but really, university education is the greatest determiner as to whether or not people will take part in uh, the, the um, high culture, those forms of culture that have the greatest official value of legitimacy. But we also see the class relationships operating in the same way. People who've never worked, people who are in routine occupations, people who are in semi-routine occupations, lower technicians, lower supervisory. Um, I can't read that myself. Uh, employers in small organizations, higher supervisory, lower, um, I can't read that, lower professionals, higher professionals, employers, and senior managers in large organizations. Another way of putting that would be to say, and that there, is, there are public policy issues in this, is if you look at the kinds of cultural activity outside the broadcasting sector, but although that's not true there either, I'll come back on that point, that are most heavily funded by the state, then the degree to which the educated middle classes in managerial and professional activities take part in those uh, forms of culture is massively disproportionate to their representation in the population as a whole. So there are real, pub you know, there are real public policy issues around this kind of research. And apropos of that, I should mention that we've done this in partnership with the Office of National Statistics, the Department of Culture, Media and Sport, the British Film Institute, and the UK's four national arts councils. So, um, that uh, takes me as far as I want to go with that. Uh, but now to show that you can also, with this 
kind of research. You can look in closer detail. at other particular areas. This is the social space of film choice, and it just looks in closer detail at what happens to people's film choice uh, using a similar technique to the previous one. But I'm going to just, I'm not going to bother trying to talk through that because time is getting on. And I'll just show how, by using some more conventional statistical techniques, we can see again how even in the area of films like uh, what the previous social space of lifestyle showed was that there was a a significant division between the institutions of legitimate culture and, um, uh, let's say, popular culture, just as a a rough summary. But also, within the sphere of popular culture, within the area of film, we get significant correlations of choice with class, with education, with gender. I hope this will be. Is that legible? This just shows how strongly polarised choices in film are in accordance with gender, so that you can see there, the key thing here is this, this is the ratio of women to men liking particular genres, and then from here, where men predominate, it's men to women. So that from romance, where there's a 31 to 1 likelihood that women like romance, down to war, where it's 10 men to one, to one woman, you can see that preferences in the area of film are actually quite acutely, you know, they're, they're very strongly gender divided. Um, but the same is true for all of the other areas that we might want to look at. If we look at age, you can see there, I'm not going to go through the details of this, you can see a very strong polarization by age in terms of uh, choices that that people make. Um, These are expressions of preference. These might be quite different from what people actually do, by the way. I mean, because quite often men and women go to the cinema together and you can see that there's a good likelihood that for most of the time, 50% of couples are disappointed in what they're seeing <laughs> in the cinema. A pretty good chance, I'd say, from that one. Um, likewise with parents and teenagers at the, at the cinema together. Um, this, this here groups together in the left-hand column the kinds of film choices that have the strongest level of association with the particular pattern of education concerned. So you can see that there are quite... Uh, education has a significant impact from musical, musical westerns, romance, and documentaries, where it's no level of education that has the uh, strongest association with those, down to universities. Literary adaptations and costume dramas is what costume refers to there, which is the kind of like the mainstay of British respectable cinema. You know, I mean, Jane Austen on screen kind of stuff. Uh, Science fiction, alternative art cinema, film noir are the kinds of film practices that are most preferred by those with a university education. And similarly, we see connections with class. Uh, Am I all right for about another five or ten minutes? Yeah. So as you can see there, the genres with the lowest class associations, I'm not using these words in a pejorative sense, but it moves up from Bollywood, cartoon, and comedy, uh, through westerns and musicals, to the ones with the highest class associations. Again, costume drama, literary adaptations, science fiction, crime, and film noir. But of course, if you look look into these figures more closely, you find quite significant differences. So that um, if you look into costume drama, literary adaptations, and science fiction, and you break down some of the large employer, uh, higher-level professional 
groups by gender, you find really very significant differences. So that in the case of science fiction, it will be by and large, it's much likely that men with um, university backgrounds in science and engineering and business management studies will like science fiction, and it's much more likely that women who have done um, humanities courses and social sciences at universities will like costume drama and literary adaptations over science fiction. So that the mechanisms of the connections between particular forms of cultural capital and particular class positions get quite intricate and detailed. But what I want to go on now is to talk about a way in which we tried to build on Bourdieu's work by doing something that he didn't. One of the evident things looking back on Bourdieu's work, a survey constructed in the 1970s before debates about, well not before, but certainly before they're anything like they are now about transnationalism, globalization, migration and so on, is with one exception, which I'll come into in a moment, the questions that Bourdieu asked his respondents were all about cultural practices that were firmly located within the French national cultural and social space. When he asked about favorite singers, the only one who theoretically, notionally isn't French there is Petula Clark, but of course we know that she's French in France. Yeah, I mean, Petula Clark married a Frenchman, lived there, etc. He asked one question. The question he asked about films was, which of the films showing in Paris do you like? And there, because it was a, a pretty objective question, he had to show a number of, or he did show, I don't mean he resisted this, but not, there were a number of American films there amongst French films. When he asks about named musical works, the only, the only named musical works he asks about are European. Okay, and when he asks about named artists, the only artists he asks about are European. Now, what we did, I don't think we did this as well as we could have done, or as far as we could have done, but one of the things we tried to do in our survey was to ask about cultural activities coming from different places. Um, we couldn't do it thoroughly enough to deal with what would be the relationship of the members of the three minority ethnic groups we asked about to community-specific ethnic practices, cultural practices amongst those minority ethnic groups. I won't go into the reasons why we couldn't do that, but we couldn't. So we decided instead that we'd try to bring out some differences between people's relationships to cultural practices that had a primary, primary, their primary association with uh, England, and it is England rather than Britain, so English. And we've constructed an English scale from those. Then cultural practices that are primarily associated with America, and then ones that are primarily associated with Europe. So these are the named items. These are not the only practices we asked about. We asked, you know, we've asked people about lots of television programs, lots of named artists, and so on. But these are the named items that have strong associations with English culture. All right, and from these we constructed a scale, by which I mean to say is we, we then did a test, a, st a statistical test, to find out how many of these activities people liked or took part in. These range across kind of middle, middle level, high, and you know, low forms, again using those terms loosely, of uh, culture within England. Then some named items for the, an American scale, again ranging across popular and more legitimate high forms like Warhol and Hitchcock, been in the middle really, but also looking in, in terms of television. Uh, Bad Girls is wrong there, that shouldn't be there, sorry. Um, looking at some popular genres like uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, but also at some kind of like quality television and imports like Sex and the City and Six Feet Under. And then for European scale, these are all uh, pretty well high cultural items. 
But then what I want to show and, and conclude on are some of the different results that we get for when we slice our data uh, or our sample up in different ways for the ways in which people are related to these different um, regionally associated cultural practices. So the key thing that I want to draw out here just very briefly in terms of um, how these things connect with class is that we can see that the European forms of, by and large, you know, high cultural practices that, from which we composed our European scale do actually divide the sample quite significantly in class terms in ways that relationship to the American cultural items don't and, and in ways that relationship to the English cultural items don't. Um, but interestingly, when we come to age, you can see that there is the English and the American scales are working in the opposite direction toward one another. That's to say, the older they are, you, the much more likely it is that you'll have strong and intensive participation in those items, cultural items that we picked, that had strong associations with English culture. And the reverse is true for those items that were connected with American culture. Uh, and European strength of association with European culture also uh, increases with age, or to put it another way, is less important the younger you are. That's for the main sample. Now, I want to look at some of the differences between the main sample and what we've called the ethnic boost sample. It's an awkward term, but it's, a, it's, a, it's the sampling term for it. And just to draw out some of the differences between the ways in which the white English, the white Celtic, the white other, and then the three members of the minority ethnic groups whom we serve are related to the different items here. In relationship to English, as you can see, the white English have the strongest association, followed slowly and probably reluctantly by the white Celtic. Um, the white other is interesting. The white other comprises those people who identified as white, who were resident in Britain at the time of the survey. Um, uh, but who were either, they were either in the main, they were either European, or they came from North America, or they came from Australia, New Zealand, and South Africa. That's, that's pretty much where they came from. So a lower connection with um, English culture. Um, uh, the strongest connection with American culture, interestingly enough, uh, uh, but also the strongest connection with European culture. Not, you know, not too surprising, but this is probably, um, well, this is not probably. Other aspects of our data show this to be the most cosmopolitan group in the sample. Right. It's, it's by far the most cosmopolitan in the range of its tastes. But we see that the uh, uh, quite low levels of relationship to the uh, English cultural items on the part of the Afro-Caribbean, Indian, and Pakistani, low also in relationship to the European, uh, but less differentiated in relationship to American culture. And I'll come back on that point, and particularly so far as the Afro-Caribbean are concerned. And I do want to just pull out of the presentation here and make a theoretical point because there are, there, there, there are different ways of looking at this data. We're looking at this data through the lens of cultural capital theory, not through the lens of social integration theory because if you look at this through the lens of social integration theory, it could be regarded as being a problem from the point of view of the civic integration of the United Kingdom and many of our political leaders think it is that um, the Pakistani, the Indians and the Afro-Caribbean members of the sample don't know enough about English culture, and that therefore they ought to have citizenship tests. That's not what's driving this uh, at all. 
Rather, the theoretical orientation that drives our concerns derived from an Australian researcher called Ghassan Haj, who in an adaptation of Bourdieu's cultural capital theory put forward the notion of national cultural capital to say that there are forms of advantage that derive to the host members of uh, multicultural, multi-ethnic societies from their knowledge of and familiarity with yeah, the um, home cultural resources. And the, the problem here is not uh, a lack of integration, but it is ways in which members of minority ethnic communities suffer another kind of cultural deficit, a nationalized one, on top of those that are a part of the more general mechanisms that I was talking about earlier on. Um, okay, so that's a very important qualification. Um, what comes next? Uh, this shows that by and large, within the ethnic boost sample, is that the, the patterns when we're looking at questions of uh, correlations with class are very similar uh, to those within the main sample. Uh, that's to say that class is less consequential, less divisive in relationship to American, relationships to American than in relationships to uh, English and European. But nonetheless, we can see class having its effect within the different ethnic communities. But the slide I want to close on, I think, yes, good, um, looks at the, uh, these figures by age. And what's interesting here is that the strength of association with, where this is expressed in terms of positively liking or actively engaging in different aspects of English culture, uh, decreases the younger you are. All right, to put it that way. Uh, the picture in relationship to European culture is a little bit more miscellaneous, but the pattern is the obverse of that in relationship to American culture. Um, uh, there, clearly, the level of involvement in engagement with the knowledge of American culture on the part of the, the different of the ethnic boost sample, again, that increases um, the younger you are. Now, I'm tempted at this point in time to write to Gordon Brown and say, if you want to do a great deal to promote stronger integration, what you should do is have an American day. <laughs> As being a kind of, like a more neutral zone in which you could uh, talk about the construction of a common identity. And uh, that's not an entirely uh, facetious remark. Uh, but however, uh, there is a lot more work. This is, uh, particularly the last few slides, these are early stages of uh, presenting work on this data. We haven't worked our way through it yet. Um, and obviously there are other things to look at that we haven't looked at. Uh, uh, one will be what difference there is in the relationships to English, American, European culture on the part of um, uh, people from the Indian, Pakistani, and Afro-Caribbean communities who were born overseas and those born in this country. Um, I haven't looked at that systematically, but in many areas where you have looked at it, there is not a, there's not a significant increase in participation and involvement on the part of those who were born in the UK. And in some cases, um, it moves in the opposite direction, with one really significant area of difference, and that's cinema. Now, if you wanted to look at what's the most effective integrative, if you want to use those terms, form, so far as um, members from the ethnic, minority ethnic communities are concerned, what they do, and what they do by and large, you know, very actively and do more than, in many cases, members of the main sample, is a very active relationship to the cinema. 
And I think there are lots of lessons in that. But I'll stop there. Thank you so much. Thank you, Tony. Um, a valiant effort, I think, at very short notice. So thank you very much for turning up today. And that was, re that was really interesting. I was uh, musing on the thing about romantic films and uh, whether or not men went to them. I think most men will go along to a romantic film because usually the alternative is actually speaking to the female partner. Just, a, just an observation. Um, I'd like to um, uh, thank Tony uh, particularly for doing that. Um, you, now, normally, it would, uh, having lost a keynote speaker, all I'd be able to say is, I'm sorry the other speaker didn't come in, and that, um, that, you know, that's it, basically. You've lost your chance. But however, I phoned the BBC earlier, and they have agreed uh, to put on the results of Marie's uh, National Joke Survey at 9 o'clock tonight on BBC One. They've even managed to get some bloke called Lenny Henry to present it. So um, that's uh, a good result for us, I think. Um, so you might want to watch that. Okay, well, thank you, uh, everybody, for coming along. Thanks for taking part in the festival. I'd just like to uh, thank a couple of people uh, in closing the festival. Uh, I'd like to particularly thank all the AV staff who have been filming and putting computers out for us and have been really helpful uh, making sure the whole thing has run, uh, has run smoothly. So if I could just uh, get you to uh, acknowledge the, the AV staff. Thank you very much. I'd also, just, just quickly, I'll do a couple of other thank yous, if you don't mind. Uh, I'd like to thank the catering staff. who have done a fantastic job over uh, the two days uh, with, I don't know if you noticed, there were special research menus. Uh, estates who have been all over the place for us doing various bits and pieces. Um, the, uh, I'd like to thank all my colleagues from the research school who have been on the registration desk, on the information desk, uh, and have taken all the queries and managed to register everyone. And as far as I know, we haven't had any tantrums or, or problems there. Uh, thank, I particularly thank all the keynotes, Tony again, uh, and also um, uh, John Zanecki and Trevor Herbert for, for theirs. I think it's been a, a fantastic opportunity over the last two days to see the range of uh, research that we, that we do in the, uh, in the Open University. I don't think we, anyone can ever claim that uh, research is secret anymore. We have got the secret out into the open. Uh, there, there's an awful lot more to do. Uh, but we've seen, I think, well, I've learned a lot about space. I've learned about music. I've learned about culture today. Um, and I've learned a lot of other things just from going around. I've listened to people. Uh, and I've learned a lot from uh, watching and talking to and interacting with all the students who took part in both the poster competition and, of course, the, uh, the, the gang of eight, as I'm now going to refer to them, who have uh, worked so hard on the presentations that they've been putting on over the uh, last couple of days. So uh, I think there's uh, still a lot of work to do uh, in terms of, of getting the research that we do out into the public domain. I think we've started that work. We certainly haven't finished it yet. Uh, and uh, we'll, we'll be continuing to try and uh, uh, take that forward within the research school. And I know everyone in the research school is very committed to doing their best that they can to work alongside the faculties to make sure all this fantastic research which we've been hearing about and seeing is actually getting the prominence that it deserves to get, not just within the Open University, but outside as well. So we're, we're looking forward to that. Finally, I'd just like to thank my, my own uh, team, my staff. Um, Tracy, um, we've just wandered in, strangely enough, at just the right time. Janet, uh, I've been absolutely marvellous, and Wendy, who's 
there, I think. Uh, and also Margaret, who isn't supposed to even be working, but is here anyway. Uh, I'd like to really thank them because they have worked like, um, uh, I was going to say like dogs, actually. I'm probably not the right term. <laughs> they have worked incredibly hard. Um, I've given away my roots here. Uh, and worked incredibly hard uh, over the last couple of days and the last few months. So in closing the festival, I'd like to thank you all for coming along. And I uh, hope you've enjoyed it. And uh, we'll see you at the next one. Thank you very much. <laughs>